Welcome to the Risk Factors Podcast. I am your host, Elizabeth Sherwin, and on this episode, I will be speaking with Dr. Catherine Bianco about maternal health and maternal mortality. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Today, I have the pleasure to be joined by Dr. Catherine Bianco. Dr. Bianco graduated from medical school at the Central University of Venezuela and did her residency at Yale School of Medicine. She completed fellowships in clinical genetics and maternal fetal medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Currently, Dr. Bianco works as a clinical associate professor in obstetrics and gynecology, maternal fetal medicine at Stanford School of Medicine. She is also director of the Maternal Congenital Heart Program. Thank you so much, Dr. Bianco, for joining me on the podcast. Well, Elizabeth, what a wonderful time we're going to have. I'm so glad to see you, and I'm very um, excited you have this opportunity to um, communicate topics that are so important and going to our heart. Yes, thank you so much. So to start, if you could introduce yourself and share a little bit about your journey that led to the work you are doing today. Thank you. So yeah, um, I'm original from Caracas, Venezuela. I did my medical school there. So, um, and then I came to the States um, late 90s. And as you were so nice to describe, I was interested in women health and also fetal physiology. So I did some research in preterm birth. And then I did my career based on high-risk obstetric and had a few years investigating uh, um, the genetics to the placenta. So I also did medical genetics that had led me to a lot of uh, exposure for different part of the field of the women's health, if you will. I have some passion out to understand uh, what affects the most our mothers and how we can modify their risk and um, help them to go through uh, high-risk pregnancies optimizing the risk factors and guaranteeing a, a good outcome for the mothers and the babies. Um, I definitely also have a lot of interest in about birth defects and, and I work in uh, a daily basis to understand uh, how these birth defects happen, how what we can do to prevent it or what I can do it after birth, working you know, in, a, in this wonderful platform that Stanford University um, offers. So one of the things I'm passionate about is also about global health and how we can impact maternal morbidity and maternal mortality in the world, but also in underserved areas. And sometimes that has led us also to the uh, work here in our zip code in, in the U.S. as well. So in 2019, I had the privilege of going with you to Guatemala City as a part of Go Moms. Can you tell us more about Go Moms? Uh, we have a nonprofit platform uh, utilizing uh, location to help medical providers to sort of deal with an emergency at the time of birth. Um, it's called Go Moms, that is a global outreach medical and obstetric simulation. And we have been fortunate to pre COVID uh, to deport it to other places that we have um, shared with you, like Guatemala City and Costa Rica and India. And what we do is we go to um, remote areas where the maternal mortality is prevalent and is actually the number one reason for a mother to have a complication or die is uh, at the time of birth. 
when they burden their child. So for instance, Guatemala holds one of the highest maternal mortality in Latin America and India contributes to 25% of the maternal mortality. So one in four maternal deaths are coming from India. So we have targeted these countries with high mortality rate and we had done a need assessment and we utilize this um, education platform to help um, medical providers, if you will, like OBGYN, family medicine, nurses, and students to run these drills when a mother is going through the process of um, birthing a child that can actually lose a lot of blood, as known as a postpartum hemorrhage, or can have an impacted uh, birth and have an emergency trying to deliver a baby with shoulder dystocia and all other things. Um, so we do, if you will, hands-on simulations, how to do surgical techniques, and also how to stop bleeding and how to deal with shoulder dystocia. But also we have learned that um, maternal mortality is also in a recent uh, level here at home. So the US is unfortunately having since early 2000, um, almost like an epidemic in maternal mortality. How is maternal mortality defined? So it's like the number of women who die from pregnancy-related causes in 42 days postpartum, uh, divided by the number of live births in that year for 100,000. And the way that we looked at are, are these deaths related, associated to pregnancy, or they are related not to pregnancy, such as like a motor vehicle accident or something like that. So when we look at the numbers in the, in the global, if you look, we were talking about India can make like a hundred per a hundred thousand, and the U.S. was about a ten um, per a hundred thousand. But with this new tendency going up, we have actually separated for the rest of developed countries like Germany and Japan and others where they have single digits. Uh, United States is like reaching like the level of Afghanistan and Sudan going over. 20. Of course, when we look at the data a little more in detail, it, it varies by region, um, by state, but also it varies how they could um, this mortality rate. So that also have bring some audits to understand. Now, you and I are in California. Where does California stand in relation to the rest of the country? I have an actual example for the rest of the country through the California um, Public Health and a collaboration from the you know the maternal prenatal collaboration center and we had seen how when california in the early 2000s saw these spikes in maternal mortality decided to create these different protocols to under to prevent this death and to decrease the morbidity and that's how reflected coming all the way down to um these days into the recent data showing that actually the maternal mortality rate in california in the state of california is 7.3 as compared to the United States that it goes to 22. So definitely what we're doing in California is working. And now the nation is looking at California protocols and example to address that. But also what it had shown, which is very interesting is the disparity in maternal mortality and how by race and ethnicity, we were able to dissect in this data um, in California how uh, depending on what group of ethnicity and, and race uh, our mothers belong and how they impact in their mortality. So for instance, if you look at numbers Hispanic compared with white, compared with African-American, the numbers can be scattering different 
uh, African-American are the most vulnerable population and, and it's almost double as compared with the counterparts like white. So it's, it's interesting to see that we need to look more into detail why we see in this health disparity. And one of the things that we were talking about, the effect of COVID-19 pandemic in access to care and showing how deep are these disparities. So definitely we are looking and this is an uh, initiative in California, how to address these disparities for uh, our maternal mortalities and morbidities, and how we can actually improve the, not only the access to care, we're looking at social determinants, demographics, and also there is uh, California that just passed a bill that it looks for safe um, mothers and babies in perinatal service. So now, is going to become mandatory in every unit, uh, birth unit in California, any perinatal service. All the uh, medical providers and health providers, nurses, staff, learners, and doctors to create um, to take inclusion bias training in order to see if that can help with this contribution to the disparity. As uh, so we can see, so deeper into uh, in, in this susceptible. Um, um, group of African-Americans. So we're definitely taking a lot of um, initiative in this state, and I am actually really uh, um, excited to be part of, and, and at Stanford, we are already launching a, a health stream uh, two hours course for everybody in the perinatal service. And, um, and we are gonna be looking at the effect after the training. So that's one of the things that, um, we have learned here in our state and how we can learn from this and deploy it to the rest of the country. But then going back globally, it's interesting to see why, what are the causes of maternal mortality, which are different with the causes of maternal mortalities in the US. For instance, in the undeveloped um, country or like what we refer to lower amino income country, it's more due to postpartum bleeding and an acute situation and how to replace the um, maternal bulimia, if you see, because, you know, um, a uterine artery that, that keeps the uterus growing and the baby growing and the placenta growing can have about 500 cc's per minute. So it takes 10 minutes to lose a mother if we can stop the, the bleeding. So you are in, in a lower resource country. So we, we tag how we can prevent that so it is in a very rapid and changing situation and utilizing this education platform that we have helped how to go through medical approaches to surgical approaches to, uh, to really address that uh, emergency. But here in the state, uh, the maternal mortality is growing not because uh, postpartum bleeding or um, obstetric medicine due to that is more because the comorbidities that our moms have. So, there is recent publication showing that delaying childbirth, so our moms are getting more and more towards the third decade um, having uh, kids, having comorbidities such as diabetes and hypertension, obesity is uh, definitely an epidemic that we are facing in the state. All of those uh, factors contribute more to this maternal mortality um, rate spike because patients are dying for cardiovascular reasons. So their number one factor on maternal deaths in the U.S. is actually due to cardiovascular issues, not to um, 
postpartum leaders. So it's interesting to see that there's a lot of preventing issues that are, or factors that we can do to optimize maternal care during labor and, and during the pregnancy in our state. So our approaches here are different. This is more to look at nutrition, more to um, looking at comorbidities and how to have the diabetes under control, um, have a better lifestyle, um, how to um, decrease the incidence of preeclampsia and, and eclampsia due to already have predisposition with chronic hypertension. So all that leads to maternal cardiac attacks. And it could be like a, a myocardial infarct, but it could be what we call a cardiomyopathy. So all that can really lead to a maternal mortality which is different when we com compare to our global reasons to, to the maternal mortality. Here in the state, our approach is, is different from the point of view that we have to look at comorbidities and we have to look at access to care too. And we also have to look at this health disparity. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting example in public health of how you really need to look at the data of what's causing the, the mortality, the morbidity and mortality in order to know how to address it. And as you mentioned, you know, the approach in the U.S. is different than the approach globally. Uh, so I think it's, it, that's just a great example of why you need to look at causes, not just look at what's happening, but you need to look at um, the data and the causes to figure out the right intervention. And going back to the example of California, it's really interesting of using the different protocols to reduce maternal mortality. So to clarify, California has been successful at reducing the overall maternal mortality rate, but the disparity between Black women and white women, for example, has really remained, remained pretty much the same. Is that correct? Yeah, but, you know, historically, remember, we, um, with the effort through the California Department of Public Health and uh, the CMQCC, um, that has this wonderful collaboration by different uh, hospitals, if you will, in California, they decided to conduct what they call it a pregnancy um, associated mortality causes outed. So they looked at patients that happened to be in reproductive age uh, that had died. And what they did was to review all these maternal deaths to establish first, the first question was, are these deaths, uh, the cause of this death related to pregnancy or not? And then with that outed, um, they look over 333 deaths and, and of those, they say, well, how many of those were related to pregnancy? And look, why was the cause of the death of that mother? So that's when we learned that cardiovascular disease, primarily cardiomyopathy, were the leading uh, diagnosis for this death. They, you know, common deaths sort of like for um, postpartum bleeding or sepsis or even venous thromboembolismo, like pulmonary embolismo, were present as well. But what was stunning to us is to see that actually the leading cause was cardiovascular disease. At the same time, the country was seeing the increase in maternity uh, mortality rate. However, it didn't have quite the granularity that California had because they did this outage. So then as we started addressing hypertension disorder, changing protocols in the emergency rooms and in the triage areas for patients that show up with shortness of breath, chest pain, tiredness, not being right off like, oh, this is just pregnant. No, it started looking at, oh, can this be a cardiomyopathy? patients showing up with um, symptoms of a stroke because their blood pressure was too high and they ended up having strokes. 
And so having protocols of like very uh, a strict protocol of when to use high anti, uh, antihypertension so the patient will not develop eclampsia or stroke. All that, those different protocols that are you know, widely public, you just go into the website so they can be printed in any um, birth center. Uh, allowed to really see with better uh, lens what was happening. So now we have data to see, well, actually there is an element of health disparity. So now what the, the collaboration is moving towards to understand why we have these health disparities. So one of the things that it, it, it's, it's indicating and it's like perhaps not just because we have, we're black, we have more risk, or why where have less risk? It's like you start looking at social determinants and and also uh, social adjusting. So there is an element that we haven't been able to quite tease out, and it's in it's actually right now being investigated in California. Can we be seeing disparities due to just you know intrinsic to our social justice system? So that's when the California bill was approved and say, well, we're going to start training our medical uh, team. With inflation bias because there are reports when people, you know, we have these in, this unknowing bias, this unconscious bias toward different populations that might determine how you care for your patients. So that's one very progressive, uh, I would say, management that California is putting forward. It's, and it will be compared with the rest of the country, which is always good to also have different corporations. So yes, we are learning that. And I think to answer your question, yes, having COVID-19 happen and see how is the disparity is so uh, clear, as I just seen, who had had more mortality with COVID-19, who had had you know, less access to care, who had had um, less uh, vaccination take, uptake and all that. That is all showing us that we th there is a deeper issue here than just the disease itself causing the maternal mortality. I would say, you know, coming in the next year or two, we're going to have very interesting data to um, really give us an, a, a more comprehensive history or story why these mothers have an increased risk for dying as compared with other countries. Unfortunately, you know, the pandemic has really highlighted these health disparities in all areas, not just maternal health. And I think, at least I've been hearing more about and you know, I'm at Berkeley and we talk about this a lot, but just how there's not these health disparities, for example, between black and white women are not due to biological reasons. Um, there were, I think, UCSF medical students and others who came out with a whole report on, you know, like there's no biological basis for race in medicine and really trying to like deconstruct some of these myths, um, because I think it's can be easier for people sometimes to just like attribute it to to biology that but that's not the case like you mentioned we really need to look at um, the social determinants of health um, and so I think it's great to hear that there's more implicit bias training coming for providers and I'm curious of like what other more preventative I guess measures are out there or measures to really address some of these social determinants of health I've heard about for example uh, the weathering hypothesis, which says that Black women experience uh, increased levels of stress due to racism. And so that then, you know, affects their biology and affects their health so that then they have contributing to these worse health outcomes in pregnancy. So 
when I hear about something like that, it, it makes me think that a lot of the work that needs to be done needs to happen before people are pregnant, before they're in the health system. We need to improve conditions, reduce structural racism, things like that to help people be healthier so that when they enter pregnancy, they have a better chance uh, for healthier outcomes. So definitely, you know, the best approach is always to be in your, I would say, in your best health state to get pregnant. Unfortunately, we still have 40 to 50 percent on unplanned pregnancies, and so we we're not we're not quite we have quite not been able to really get to that point to say like pregnancy should be planned. And unfortunately, people find themselves pregnant these days, and um, the same way it hasn't changed much with education and birth controls and, and all kind of methods. But it's right. I mean, if you could optimize the maternal health before conception, that's ideal. So it'd be a proactive, not a reactive um, approach. I think there's a lot of education that goes into that, and and they're you know trying to get young mothers. If if you will, or young people, young population educated early on. So when the time is, is appropriate for them to decide to embark in a pregnancy, we, we're being able to guarantee that they're in the best state of health for them. I mean, that has shown that pregnancy itself is a huge motivator for women to, to get uh, better health and to seek care. So like people stop smoking and maybe left, uh, stop using drugs and all that when they are pregnant. So it's a, it's a, it's a window opportunity in the women um, life to do major interventions, you know, um, but ideal situation would be that this happens before we um, are pregnant, but sometimes life is not perfect, you know. Uh, with regard to the disparities that we know that exist, I think it's interesting how, how much momentum it is there to really understand, like, it's not just something in, in, like you're saying about biology. The environment has a lot to do and we, I would say, there is some catch up to do as well. So if you just use a simple example that, you know, women's now like are delaying childbirth due to career or other things, uh, how we, we haven't quite catch up to evolution that way. So then, then they turn the pregnancy with all, all set of issues uh, because they're delaying childbirth. So, so those are things that um, are interesting, but it's our... Um, reality. So how we can get to those different populations in a way to optimize the pregnancy before yet they are pregnant. I think that would be a very uh, important priority. It's just really, I believe strongly it, it, it starts with education and the more education that you can provide, education is power, isn't it? So uh, our women can have their choice when to get pregnant and to embrace the pregnancy in the best way and not just find themselves pregnant and now have to deal with this and how I'm gonna do it. So I think education is, is the key here because you might have you know, a determined environment or a determined set of social determinants that it would not be um, the best um, environment to embarking in a pregnancy, but if you could modify it before you embark on a pregnancy, then you optimize um, your outcome. Then. So I think we need to start early, and I think we need to start with young, in young population, and we need to use better methods of um, education. Absolutely. I'm doing a project on contraceptive 
perspective or sex education. And it's really shocking. I mean, I grew up in California and we don't know how good we have it here. Um, the majority of states in the US don't require comprehensive sex education. So a lot of states have abstinence only education or abstinence plus. And it's just really, if young people aren't even taught how to prevent pregnancy, then of course there's gonna, you know, we have these 50% of pregnancies in the US are unplanned. So yeah. I definitely agree that we need to start younger and focus on, I think education combined with access to, um, there's just still so many barriers to people getting, you know, contraception and other um, forms of reproductive health care due to insurance and that kind of thing. So I think education paired with access is absolutely key. For sure. And I, you know, you're saying like, well, you know, what other things we can do to optimize or prevent? And I, and I think that there is something that we say to years, centuries of environment influence or how did you, you know, how we have evolved to through um, civilization. So that would take tremendous amount of effort to uh, sort of like upset it or like how we can write off many years of slavery and deprivation and lack of nutrients and all, you know, you, I know biology is not entirely there, but there has been a shortfall. So I think it's, some, it's more about like now, like how we can do now to optimize this so with education, with better health, with changing environment, with different programs, isn't it? That I can uh, widely be uh, deported in, in a large population, identify uh, your critical areas, identify your vulnerable populations, and but also understand their intrinsic culture. And I think we have talked about this when we used to go to Guatemala and this is like, we go with this education platform and we go there in a humble way. We don't come in and say, oh, we come to the, from the United States and this is the way you're supposed to do. No, no, we go there, we immerse in the culture, we immerse in their approaches to medicine. We do a needs assessment and say, okay, what do you have here who can help you in a way that you can utilize your own um, tools, your own culture, so there is sustainability. So they can utilize these intrinsic educational tools that we're given to them in a way that can help their population. So we're not bringing the US technology that is not gonna be easy deployable or sustainable. We use, we understand the culture, we understand uh, the people that we are helping and they're able and they're active participatory on this effort. And you see, we haven't been there in, in a while because pandemic, but they are continuing educating and they're continuing using the tools that we have provided them. And I think that's something that you need to understand here in the US too. We need to understand the social determinant of health but, and also apply it. So because maybe what we need in, um, in Central California is not what we need in coastal California. And we need to understand our interest in population and how to like adapt to that and help them. And I think that's one of the things that those where diversity has such a powerful approach because you need to understand the diversity of your population, put your lenses and say no one size fits all. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I think this no, no one size fits all describes it perfectly. And I think to be even more clear, I said earlier that there's no biologic basis for race. And then you mentioned how years of slavery, for example, have impacted the biology of African-Americans through stress, deprivation, trauma, etc. And we do know now how intergenerational trauma impacts people on a biological level. So I just want to make clear the distinction that what you're talking about are real changes in biology caused by the environment, which is a term we we're using in this case to really mean white people oppressing black people through slavery and racism. So these biological health outcomes as a result of stress, trauma, racism, and oppression are very real. What's not real is when we use race as a cause of health outcomes. That's the point I was making earlier. It can be quote unquote easier for people, mainly white people, to say that race itself is causing these poor health outcomes among black people so that we don't have to be held accountable for racism, oppression, and unequal power systems. You know, we have this 400 years of slavery and oppression, and you can't just make that go away. And so part of having different approaches for different populations is about recognizing that. I think that's kind of part of what equity is. It's, it's not giving everyone an equal solution or treatment. It's about like providing the needed potentially extra resources or different resources to communities who have been most impacted. And so, yeah, that could could look like a lot of different things, but potentially putting extra effort into making sure that these populations that have been marginalized are getting the access to reproductive health services and other health services and preventative services because historically they haven't been. Um, so I think you said that really well. And it just made me think of something that I've learned in my public health classes about different approaches to address health um, issues. And the, there's one approach that I think we typically more th think of more often called the population approach, where that's kind of more like the one size fits all, like a, a public health intervention will work for everyone. And the reality is when you do that, it's important, but then what can happen is then you end up kind of with like this bell curve with people on the and some people do really well, the people who are already advantaged, and then the people who are already at the bottom do worse. And so I think what you were describing is what I learned to be called more like the vulnerable population approach, where you target the people most at risk or the people most impacted um, by a certain disease or health outcome. And so I think it's just really interesting to think about that in this context. Yeah, you're right. And I, I, I'm glad that it's been taught because I, I think we we definitely we're learning a lot and I think pandemia is showing you so much and in particular you can use the case globally or you can just look at the case of the United States and and look what happened to the uh, vaccination so unfortunately it's a public health epidemic um, it's a public health intervention is a preventable disease now because you can just vaccinate for and not everybody um, is understanding that. And so where, where is the message being missed? Uh, I was just not being communicated to the vulnerable population. And like you say, you know, like if we use that theory, a lot of the people that have access and education is vaccinated. But the people perhaps that doesn't have um, that quite background is not vaccinated and they are the vulnerable people. 
So that that's where it, um, I, I think it's important to understand that not one size fits all. Exactly. And back to what you were saying earlier, I just wanted to comment on how interesting it was going to Guatemala and doing the medical simulation. And it's really, uh, it was really exciting to see how that simulation works. And so you essentially do kind of like these drills um, as if there's a postpartum hemorrhage happening or a seizure or something like that. And you go through all the steps that the medical team should take. So each person um, plays the role of a different person. You know, there's nurses, doctors, anesthesiologists in the room. And so everyone kind of role plays what would happen. And then after the scenario, you debrief it and talk about, um, you know, what went well, what went wrong and different things like that. And so I just think that's such an interesting and important way to address some of these scenarios. I think, like you said, it was really interesting to, to see how you were able to work within the context of the of Guatemala and of Guatemala City. So you're working with the materials and resources that people there have, rather than just trying to tell them to do something that maybe you do in the United States, but that wouldn't work in their context. So I think it goes back to what we were talking about, about different approaches, depending on where you are and the resources that you have. With regard to the simulation itself, you know, we, we um, copy this from aviation. You know, aviation has been doing simulation forever and they have to do thousands and thousands of hours in the simulator before they can fly. So why not, not to do this in the medical field um, where they, and more during emergencies that you have minutes and if you rehearse, you'll be ready. And what I think is also simulation has allowed is also to integrate your team. So you understand how the communication is vital you also sort of take those old, old school takes that there's in medicine is almost like a military system. So you got the attending and then you have like the senior resident and you have the junior resident and the student. So, and then the nurses and, and, and other staff. So it takes away the hierarchy. Like, oh, I can't say anything because I'm just a student. I can say anything that the nurse, the doctor knows better. This actually puts everybody in the same level because everybody can input information, which is viable. So that, that um, feeding, uh, self-feeding everybody information and allowed to have a safe environment and trust environment improve patient care. So being able to understand how to have this loop of communication, how everybody in the team is viable and being able to rehearse it before the emergency happened in the real life has shown that it definitely improved um, patient care. And more in units like emergency room or labor and delivery where, you know, everything happens within minutes, being able to rehearse this emergency. So when the emergency happens, you already have optimized a protocol and you are limiting your mistakes, you make less mistakes, has definitely shown that has improved on medical care. So I, I think simulation is here and it's here to stay for all kinds of approaches in the medical field. And one other thing that we talked about related to health disparities and, and access to healthcare are language barriers. So I've also had the privilege to work with you and see firsthand some of your interactions with patients, including Spanish speaking patients. So how do language barriers impact pregnancy care and what has been done or can be done to reduce language barriers for patients? 
That's actually vital. And I think here in California and in other states in, in, in that have a heavy, dense Spanish population, uh, it's definitely vital to have an ability to communicate properly with these patients. So for instance, at Stanford, we're conducting a study looking at um, how language of preference is important, meaning like is English is not your first language, making sure that consent and paperwork is also in Spanish, making sure that you have an active translator uh, in every single interaction with the patient, either in person or through iPads. We deployed iPads in every room, we deployed iPads in every uh, triage area, so the patient at least has the ability to communicate. And we've seen with, with utilizing the iPads, uh, the, the patient definitely has the opportunity to communicate in her natural language and you you have less opportunity to have misspoken or mistakes and, and don't understand well. I will tell you as a first-hand experience for me because I'm bilingual, uh, you know, uh, English is my second language. It's sometimes I will come into a patient room and I've been told already the story of the patient and then I start talking to the patient and the story change um, because the patient feels more comfortable um, you know, is uh, able to share uh, uh, information that I understand maybe in uh, uh, in a different way because we I understand well the the language. So it's so imperative that at the medical care, you know, in the in the medical centers and where the med ambulatories, whenever these patients are um, seeking care, there is uh, an ability for them to use the proper language either by translation in person or electronically translation with iPads or phones, um, because it's definitely it's detrimental to the medical care when the patients don't have any ability to communicate in their own language. Um, and I think, uh, you know, having the California state to have over 50% of the population in Hispanic, we're definitely looking at that in, in our centers to say how we can optimize their care and uh, you know sometimes you can't hire everybody in your team that is going to be bilingual but at least you can provide um, resources how to communicate sometimes the patient will bring a family member but guess what in the time of COVID we can't have the family member so that's been actually even more uh, showing the need to have proper translation for these patients definitely and you mentioned you can't hire everyone on your team to be bilingual of course but or do you think that there needs to be more diversity in terms of healthcare providers who actually speak the languages reflected by the patient population? I definitely think that's important. And, and as in anything, you know, we're talking here in Spanish, but, you know, we also have an Asian population, which is in different pockets in California. So you can also advocate that way and say, you know, depending on your patient population, maybe you perhaps want to look at your critical um, mass and see in your in your team how much diversity you have. And we definitely have a push uh, in in our department of UN Stanford to uh, increase diversity, not only at, at the level of our learners, but also in our faculty and staff. Uh, because it's having shown in science, diversity definitely improve healthcare, improve research, improve um, the way that you uh, um, can advance the field. So we're definitely looking at that. Um, it, there's many uh, approaches, and but there's also many barriers. 
And it's a dynamic process. I think everybody uh, is in their own diversity journey and we are, COVID has brought a lot of bad things, but it also have bring opportunities to create new things and positive uptake. So people are more passionate these days. People um, are creating a great moment. They, they're really feeling more for the social justice. They, they wanna create more diversity in different fields, in education, in medicine, in business. You can look at how different, in, just to use the um, commercial sector, how they are changing the leadership. The C-suite is becoming more uh, diverse, how people are feeling that they can be outspoken now. Um, I think there's a lot of susceptibility. Um, I, I'm not gonna deny that, that it, sometimes the pendulum goes one way and then goes to the other way. So we, you don't wanna go too radical, you know, white or, or black. You wanna find some kind of gray tone, but it's a great moment for, because there's so much uh, uh, enthusiasm and so much positive out, outpouring toward being diverse to, to, have, to have these hard conversations because they are hard conversations and to come up with uh, collective thought that how we can improve and how we can become more and more inclusive and less, less exclusive. Yeah, I think that's very well said, becoming more inclusive and less exclusive. Thank you so much, Dr. Bianco. Is there anything else you wanted to mention? I think for our young audience out there, everything is, is better if you're proactive, not reactive. So meaning if you're thinking about um, having a pregnancy, maybe checking with you, uh, primary care, your PCC, your PMD, uh, your nurse practitioner, is anything out there that, that I can do better before I embark in my pregnancy so I can have a wonderful experience during pregnancy because pregnancy is a, is a wonderful time and you are creating a human being and you want to enjoy it healthy and with your best outpour energy, you know, and to have that wonderful bundle of joy and, and guarantee the best that you can from the very beginning. So I would say if you can be proactive and not reactive, that will be my ask. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Bianco, for joining me on the podcast. I think this has been a really exciting and interesting conversation about pregnancy. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Risk Factors. We covered a lot, yet I also feel like we barely scratched the surface. Maternal health and maternal mortality is a big topic, and I think as you hopefully could tell from our conversation, there's also many angles to look at this from more of the medical perspective that Dr. Bianco comes from and then the public health perspective that I'm studying. And so I hope that this provided some entry points for you. And I have several links that I will put in the description of the episode. I will put the website for the California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative that is the group that Dr. Bianco mentioned that does the toolkits for hospitals to improve outcomes. The second link is for the Go Moms website in case you want to read more about medical simulation training in Guatemala and other countries. And then lastly, I mentioned the uh, work done by UCSF medical students and the title of the report that I was referencing is called Toward the Abolition of Biological Race in Medicine. And so I will put that link in the 
description as well. Thank you and I'll see you next time.